But we are jumping back into Numbers. And this week we're in Numbers chapter 7. Now, here's a trivia fact. Longest chapter in the Bible. Does anybody know what it is? Psalm 119. Over 100 verses. Yes, Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. You might know what the second longest chapter in the Bible is? Numbers chapter 7. That's right. You get, uh, you get a all-you-can-eat Ruth's Chris lunch for that correct answer. So number 7 is the longest chapter, not just in Numbers, but in the whole Bible except for Psalm 119. And it's <clears throat> the whole chapter is about giving. The whole chapter is about giving to God, presenting uh, gifts, free gifts to God. And the way that it does it is <clears throat> we've seen that the tabernacle's been set up, the priesthood's been dedicated, the thing is ready to function, and we've had glimpses of the tabernacle at work, like hints and glimpses, you know, a little bit in Leviticus with Aaron's sons and they were offering the fire and everything, but the full tabernacle hasn't been up and running yet. It hasn't had its, its hard launch date. And so this is, this chapter is the commencement or the, the inauguration or whatever you want to call it, the ribbon cutting ceremony, whatever you want to call it, for the tabernacle. And this chapter takes place a month before everything in, that we've read so far in Numbers. It takes place right at the tail end of Exodus chapter 40. So Exodus chapter 40 happened. It gave a brief little summary statement in the end of chapter 40, or around verses 35, 34. <clears throat> a brief little future summary statement. But then the action stopped for all of Leviticus and the first six chapters of Numbers. Because those were all, or all of that was the legal and the ceremonial and the, the civil presentation or summary of how Israel should live. And so now we've finally gotten back to the narrative and there's going to be one more brief ceremonial, civil, you know, um, religious note after this chapter because it's like, it, there's reasons for it uh, literarily, but and then the, the narrative narrative, the real story, will pick up in chapter 10. So we're, we're now things are, are picking back up. Israel is about to be on the move. They've got their functioning mini Mount Sinai, which is the tabernacle, the place where they meet with God, where God meets with them and dwells in their midst. They've got it set up, and now it's time to celebrate it. And so... We read in chapter 7, verse 1, when Moses finished setting up the tabernacle, and that happened in Exodus 40. Okay, that's just something to keep in mind. Just remember that. All of Leviticus and everything we've read in Numbers so far was like a giant parenthesis for what was going on. When Moses finished setting up the tabernacle, he anointed it and consecrated it and all its furnishings. He also anointed and consecrated the altar and all its utensils. Then the leaders of Israel the heads of families who were the tribal leaders in charge of those who were counted, and these were the ones who, the cens who would be called out in the census of chapter 1, these, these heads of the tribes, these chiefs, these princes, these, these big men, 
they brought as their gifts before the Lord six covered uh, before the Lord six covered carts and twelve oxen, an ox from each leader and a cart from every two. These they presented before the tabernacle. The cart was it, it, the word for it is like a covered wagon, not like a hand cart. Right? This is a covered wagon. It's pulled by the large animals, the, the, the male oxen, or the bull, and, and it's, it is covered and it's loaded with stuff. <clears throat> Verse 4, The Lord said to Moses, Accept these from them that they may be used in the work at the tent of meeting. Give them to the Levites as each man's work requires. So Moses took the carts and the oxen and gave them to the Levites. He gave two carts and four oxen to the Gershonites as their work required. Remember, they were supposed to carry the pieces of the tabernacle. He gave four carts and eight oxen to the Merorites as their work required. They were supposed to carry, you know, things like the frames and the altar and, I mean, the curtains and all of that stuff. This is the previous chapters. Uh, As their work required, they were all under the direction of Ithamar, son of Aaron the priest. So Aaron's next son. He had Eliezer and then Ithamar was next. But Moses did not give any to the Kohathites because they were to carry on their shoulders the holy things for which they were responsible. We saw a couple of weeks ago that the Kohathites, they carried on poles the ark itself, the altar, the, the, the basin, the holy things, the, the gold things they carried. The silver, the bronze, the wood, the metal implements, all the other stuff the other tribes carried, and they carried those on their, in their covered wagons that they're being given. So the offerings that are being given are not just random offerings and they're not just purely symbolic offerings. These are functional offerings. These are the people of God giving the servants of God the means by which to do the work of God. So don't think of just them writing checks you know, or, or bringing gold or jewelry. They are bringing practical needs. They're bringing covered wagons and oxen to pull the wagons. And they're gonna, and we'll see later what they bring. They're gonna bring things that are practical. They're they're of great worth, but they're also very, very practical. And I think I just think that's a cool thing to keep in mind. The gifts. It says they brought these as gifts. That word in Hebrew for gifts is carbon. That's the word later. Some of you that are New Testament savvy, you'll remember later in Mark's gospel, around chapter seven, Jesus has an argument with the Pharisees. And he's pointing out to them how they say they keep the law according to the letter, but they do so in a way that completely undermines the purpose of the law. And he gives some examples. And one of the examples he gives is he says, you guys, you're supposed to care for your parents in their old age. But what you say, a number of you, not all, but, but the ones he's arguing with, he said, but you get around that through the loophole of saying, whatever I was going to give to you, I've dedicated as korban. He says that in chapter, Mark chapter 7. And he says, thereby you're nullifying the work of God. See, what happened was that the, later in the time of Jesus, this isn't in Torah, this is that tradition that Jesus... Jesus never criticized Moses. He criticized the traditions that people added to Moses. And one of those traditions was gifts like this. You could say, I give all of my future wealth to the temple. It's korban. What that meant was you used it until you died. And when you died, it all went to the temple. What that also meant was that your 
aging parents or grandparents or people who depended on you, while you were alive, they didn't get it. In other words, you, sh- you should have used it to care for them, but if you, were, if you were miserly, if you were ungrateful, if you were a rebellious child, if you didn't love your, or honor your mother and your father, all these things, you could get around having to give to and support your family in their old age by saying, well, I would support you, but it, all, everything I have is Corban. It's all dedicated as Corban. Right? And so it was a seemingly pious act. Ooh, the temple would be very happy to have this foundation grant that you're leaving them at the expense of the people who you were supposed to put first and foremost in caring for, which are the ones who brought you into the world, your parents. So Jesus criticized that. Well, well, that's what these gifts are. They're, they're, they're dedicated. So the idea of something being korban in and of itself is not a bad thing. Jesus didn't criticize the concept of gifts to the temple. He criticized the misuse of that in order to break the weightier principle of the law, which was one of the Ten Commandments, honor your mother and your father. That comes before giving gifts to the tabernacle or the temple. So again, he's not criticizing and Jesus never criticized what is written. He only criticized the traditions that were added to what is written. You look in the whole Gospels, you'll never see him denigrate or speak down to or say, yeah, Moses wrote that, but that's not really true. You know, we, we, no, none of that. You never see that in the New Testament. So it says, when the altar was anointed, the leaders brought their offerings for its dedication and presented them before the altar for its dedication. Here's another Hebrew word for the day. Okay, you've learned korban. The word for dedication, chanak. That is where the holiday Hanukkah comes from. Hanukkah celebrates in the intertestamental time the dedication of the temple. It's the festival of lights. It's the, and it happened during the time of Maccabees, and it's, it's a whole story about how the temple needed to be dedicated, that there was oil that ran out, and it, and, and it miraculously lasted for eight nights instead of one. And because of that, then they were able to... It, it's a whole story. I'm not going to get into the history of Hanukkah here, but this, that's, that's the word that comes from. It's dedication. It's, it's dedicating it and, and, and consecrating it and all of those terms that we use. That's what's going on here. This is the Hanukkah, the first one, so to speak. So, then it says, For the Lord had said to Moses, Each day one leader is to bring his offerings for the dedication of the altar. So, for 12 days, they're going to stop. They're going to pause. They're about to get on with everything, traveling into Sinai. They're ready. The tabernacle is up and functioning. And for 12 days, they're going to have dedication of these gifts to the tabernacle. So, the one who brought his offering on the first day was Nashon, son of Aminadab of the tribe of Judah. His offering was one silver plate weighing 130 shekels and one silver sprinkling bowl weighing 70 shekels, both according to the sanctuary shekel, each filled with fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering, one gold dish weighing 10 shekels filled with incense, one young bull, one ram, and one male lamb a year old for a burnt offering, one male goat for a sin offering or purification offering, and two oxen, five rams, five male goats, and five male lambs a year old to be sacrificed as a fellowship offering. That's the big meal, remember. That's the the Thanksgiving meal that you would enjoy. This was the offering of Nashon, son of Amenadab. On the second day, 
Nethanel, son of Zuar, the leader of Issachar, brought his offering. Now what's his going to be, right? We saw that Nashon, Judah's offering, was this plate with the fine flour and a bowl with the incense and it were the three types of offerings that were celebratory in nature. You know, there's no, there's no um, reparation offering here because this, this isn't an occasion for getting rid of sin. This is an occasion for restoring broken fellowship. These are pure, celebratory, dedicating offerings. These are the happy offerings. All right? These are not the sin offerings. So what's this one going to be? Now, everybody, like, bated breath, day two. Oh, this is going to be cool. What, that's what Judah gave. Let's see how Issachar trumps him, so to speak, or, or, or you know, outdoes him, or, or whatever. Here's what we read. The offering he brought was one silver plate weighing 130 shekels and one silver sprinkling bowl weighing 70 shekels, both according to the sanctuary shekel, each filled with fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering. One gold dish weighing 10 shekels filled with incense. One young bull, one ram, one male lamb a year old for a bird offering. One male goat for a sin offering. Two oxen, five rams, five male goats, and five male lambs a year old to be sacrificed as a fellowship offering. This was the offering of Nethanel, son of Zuah. What do you notice? Same thing. Brought the exact same gift. Third day. Same gift. Fourth day. Same gift. Twelve times. Now this is, I, I'm in, in prepping for this, for this study, I translate the book. Like I go through numbers and translate it. Um, and this was the easiest chapter to translate. Because <laughs> I just had to translate a paragraph and then just repeat it with the different names of the tribes. But the point is that why did they list them out separately? Why not say, and each one of them brought this? There's an intentional repetition here. How many of you have ever been to a graduation? Yeah? How many of you were bored at graduation? What do you go for? For the one person whose name gets called. What do you have to sit through? Everybody else's name. Right. That's the point of a graduation. Every name gets their chance. It's a celebration. Everyone's waiting. When you're at graduation, you're waiting to hear the name of the person that you care about so that you can stand up and cheer. I went to a public school. Our graduations were rowdy. We had families, because this is as close to success as some of these kids would ever come. And so we had families going nuts. You would have think they won the lottery because they graduated high school. But it, it, that's, that's, there's a reason for that. Because it's special. Hearing your name called or your family member's name called is a moment of pride and it's a moment of joy and it's a moment that you can go, yes, that's my guy. That's my tribe. Those are my gifts. I contributed to this. Well, it's the same with Israel. This is Israel's celebration time. So hearing this read out loud, you would wait for your tribe. And remember, in Israel's history, by the time this was finished in its final form of editing, not in writing, it was written back during Moses' time, but in terms of editing and how we have it today, Israel was already in exile and back from exile, and the ten of the twelve tribes were just lost. I mean, they were just dispersed after the Assyrian conquering. And, and the only two real tribes that were left with any sense of tribal identity were, were, were Judah 
mainly, and then you know some of the Levites or maybe Benjamin or others, but for the most part, a lot of these tribes were long gone in terms of identity. So hearing this for later readers would have been especially significant because this preserves for all time the memory of their tribe and its giving to the tabernacle. The tabernacle doesn't function without these gifts. The tabernacle, these are the memorial gifts. And each of the tribes mentioned by name in a very boring and repetitive manner. Just like a graduation celebration. So our, we, we have the disadvantage of we aren't from any of these tribes. Well, I mean, some of you in here probably maybe are ethnically Jewish and you could go trace your ancestry to these tribes, but I can't. There's no Irish tribes here. Like these are, <clears throat> so when I read this, I'm like, all right, funny names and weird places. I don't get it. But the New Testament tells me that anyone who's in Messiah, anyone who's in Jesus, has been grafted into Israel. So these are my tribe members, family members as well. This is my history as well. It's your history as well if you are in faith, in covenant with the Lord through the Messiah of these tribes, Israel, from the tribe of that first one we mentioned, Judah, which is Jesus. So it goes on and it shows that all of the tribes had input into the offerings. They were all in. No one tribe's gift was more important than the others. No one tribe's gift took priority over the others. You know, when people give to a church and they want to put their name on something, right? You know, churches do that, fundraisers. Like, in order to get people to give you money, you got to tell them, I'm going to put your name on something a lot of times. And so, you know, you give $50, oh, you get a brick with your name on it, right? You give $1,000, we'll give you a whole pew with your name on it. You give $20,000, you get a stained glass window in memory of such, you know, all this ways that we have of just nickel and diming people out of money by appealing to their pride and vanity. Um, it's, it, it, that, that wasn't happening here. All of the tribes gave the same thing. No one tribe could look at the other and go, you know, when it comes to this whole covenant relationship with God, we're the superior tribe. God, our gifts more valuable than your gifts. You know, tribes like Dan that would have a bad reputation later on, they couldn't look to, Judah couldn't look at Dan and go, well, your gift's not as important as ours. Your tribe doesn't as matter as much as ours. No, all the gifts were the same. They were all in. No one's gift was better than the other. No one's gift was less necessary than the other, or excuse me, more necessary than the other's. So none of them over overlooked. The tribes in here are equal. And this is a day of celebration. And it's a day of, of all of Israel being... Or it's not a day, it's 12 days of all of Israel stopping and recognizing the contribution of each of these tribes. We take for granted that because we think of ourselves as one nation. Right? We're just kind of... Well, <laughs> we should think of ourselves as one nation. In these days, sometimes we like to think of us as two different nations. But ideally, we should be one nation, but that doesn't negate our individuality. Who watches, uh, who are political junkies and you watch the, the party conventions? Have you ever watched the conventions? It's a lot of dog and pony show and it's a lot of foolishness on both parties, all parties. But there's the point where, you know, when they name their, their nominee 
And what do they do? Each state stands up. The delegates from the great state of Virginia delegate our votes for so-and-so. And everybody cheers, right? And then the delegates for so-and-so. Every state, even little Hawaii, I think even Puerto Rico, like even the non-states, Guam or whatever, they all, every state gets to stand up and say, this is who we pick, right? There's, there's something about us that wants to, in the unity and in the politics, it would be we're all one party, Democrat or Republican, but we're made up of people from all these states. So there's unity, but there's also diversity. Well, it's the same thing with, you could picture it this way. Israel, you know, the, 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 the people from Issachar, they may have these certain hats or banners or whatever, and the people from, I'm making that up because that's what p- political parties do. Like Texas, always some big guy with a cowboy hat, and Hawaii always has a lay or a flowered shirt on or whatever. But, you know, it's something to say, this is who we are as a tribe, but we're coming together to do something bigger than our tribe, which is all of us as a people. And so that's what's going on with the people of God, with the Israel of God, is they are a tribe. Now, tribal infighting will become a reality. And the tribes will, will not always get along. And later in Israel's history, once they get into the land, even when the land's divvied up among the tribes, there's going to be some hostility and animosity. But this gives us a picture of what Israel was to be at its best. Each tribe bringing forward its offering, equal in the sight of God, all necessary, in a big 12-day celebration. And so then it ends, verse 84. These are the offerings of the Israelite leaders for the dedication of the altar when it was anointed. Twelve silver plates, twelve silver sprinkling bowls, twelve gold dishes. Each silver plate weighed 130 shekels, each sprinkling bowl 70 shekels. Altogether, the silver dishes weighed 2,400 shekels according to the sanctuary shekel. The twelve gold dishes filled with incense weighed ten shekels each, according to the sanctuary shekel. Altogether, the gold dishes weighed 120 shekels. The total number of animals for the burnt offering came to twelve young bulls, twelve rams, twelve male lambs a year old, together with their grain offering. Twelve male goats were used for the sin offering. The total number of animals for the sacrifice of the fellowship offering came to twenty-four oxen, sixty rams, sixty male goats, sixty male lambs a year old. These were the offerings for the dedication of the altar after it was anointed. That's a summary. The whole chapter could have just been that paragraph. But they wanted again for all the reasons we've mentioned. Then it ends. When Moses entered the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him from between the two cherubim above the atonement cover on the ark of the testimony. And he spoke with him. Now, finally... Moses is able to fully enter into because flip back we got three minutes flip back to Exodus 40 when this happened some of you weren't here when we were studying Exodus 40 it was over a year ago in Exodus 40 at the end of the chapter verse 34 this described the setup of the tabernacle and then it gave this kind of summary of future things to come that would be unpacked in Leviticus and Numbers Here's what I meant by that. Exodus 34 says, verse 33, chapter 40, verse 33, Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar and put up the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. So Moses finished the work. The tabernacle was finished. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. 
in all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud would go from place to place, blah, blah, blah. Exodus ended. Moses could not enter. The glory of the Lord filled it. And in the context of Exodus, that's to show that God's glory, His weight, His might was there and it was so thick that it was unapproachable. But the whole purpose of the tabernacle was for the unapproachable to become approachable. The gifts had not been offered yet. The worship had not been inaugurated yet. It had been set up. Everything had been set up to work. God was there. But it's not until numbers, the gifts are given, the celebration is made, the fellowship, which is what those offerings that they gave were for, the fellowship has been inaugurated. Now, Moses entered the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord. He heard the voice speaking to him from between the cherubim. The purpose wasn't to just have a smoke and mirrors show. Right? God didn't want to just be a big fog machine to fill the tabernacle with smoke for the sake of people to go, whoa, look, God's here. That was only half of it. The other half of the purpose of God dwelling among His people was so He could communicate with them. And it wasn't until the gifts were received. It wasn't until it was dedicated. It wasn't until there was a celebration and all of the sacrifices and all of the implements and all of the features that we've been looking at for the past year and a few months, all of that in place, now God speaks to Moses. Now the tabernacle is functioning. Now people, Israel, can get what all the nations around them longed for, which is communication with God. The Egyptian records are filled with incantations and spells and, and, and things that you had to do to try to hear a word from the gods. The, you can look at the Greco-Roman world and people would travel for miles and miles just to hear from the oracle, which was usually a drugged out person sitting over a vent where methane or some gas was leaking up out of the underworld to give them visions that they then thought was a message from the gods from the underworld. This is, I mean, people would go to incredible lengths to hear from God. And Israel, we have the only account that we know of where God does the reverse and He actually goes out of His way to come talk to and live among Israel. Right in their midst. And it's in a tent. Not a temple yet, but a tent. He's a God on the move because His people are on the move. And His goal is to dwell with His people. When they get into the land, it'll become a house. Right now it's a tent. We're out of time. Next week, Numbers 8. There's a few more odds and ends that God has to finish clarifying before the people are ready to set out into the wild. And we'll look at that next week. See you then.